Hello and welcome to The Change Troubleshooter. This is Nina Dar's podcast. Welcome to Season 2 of The Change Troubleshooter, the sustainability season. Today, Nina is joined by Amy Rodder-Brown, a Toronto-based strategy coach who helps artists and creators who want to begin or expand a creative practice. To be creative, you have to allow your brain to operate in its default network state, basically unstressed. Overloading our brains with constant input and stimulation is counterproductive to peak performance and creativity. If you want to achieve that aha moment, just let your brain be and have a thinking sabbatical. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Change Troubleshooter podcast and today I'm delighted to be joined by Amy Rhoda-Brown. Hi Amy. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. And you're, uh, we're doing this all the way in Toronto, Canada. That is correct, yeah. And what's it like in Toronto today? It's stunning. Summer came over the weekend and it's just here now. And I've had to, you know, change my whole wardrobe and put the boots away and get the sandals out. Oh, lucky you. Although summer, well, spring is meant to be here, is probably the coldest it's been uh, on record. And one minute, actually, if I look out the window now, it is very sunny, but I could turn around in a few seconds and it'll be torrential rain. It's been the worst. That is weird. It was a long time coming for us, but it finally arrived with a bang. Yeah. And important because of our topic today, we're going to talk about sustainable you and the benefit of a thinking sabbatical. (laughs) So let's start with a bit about you, Amy. A yay sayer. I love that. What does that mean? Well, you know, the world has lots of naysayers. There's a lot of people who will tell you that that's not sensible or do you really have time for that or you know you're not very good at that or what have you the people I work with are people are trying to get more art in their life who want to make more art whether they're making room for it as a side hustle or just to express themselves or they're working artists and they want to do more you know like I said there's naysayers there's plenty of them you don't need to look far so I like to think of myself as a yaysayer. I will sort of unconditionally celebrate your desire to make more art and express yourself because I think that's a a good a public good. Oh, definitely, definitely. There's a, there's just something amazing. I mean, I'm scared of creating art. My husband <sighs> is an artist, and yeah, and I think and because he's an artist in every way, a poet, a musician, a painter. And then there's just a set of things that he can just look at and they make sense to him. Whereas if put a paintbrush and some paper in front of me and I go back to being a child and it seems that I can only draw a car in the same way as a child or a house. And I just, <laughs> I just wonder where that uh, because actually in work I'm quite creative but it is very different I think it uh, a creator and maker an artist a performer in that way is is quite different yeah well there's oh, there's a lot to unpack there but I think it's interesting to think of how we do kind of lock people in childhood in terms of creativity we, it's sort of 
structured as like, this is a thing that children do. And it takes sort of a determined decision on your part to say, no, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to grow up and continue to make art. And so someone like your husband has all those years of experience doing that, which you don't have. So it makes sense that, you know, you would feel stuck when you're painting something because you haven't done it, right? You haven't grown up as an artist. So one of my buzz phrases is art is work. Like you have to, you have to put in the work, you know, it's not just something that flows magically. There's no muse or whatever. You have to strategize and plan and work it into your day. So it doesn't just happen. And that's so interesting in itself, because when you're not an artist, you don't think it's like that. You think that it's a natural gift that must just flow out of your veins and you don't need to think about it. You don't need to strategize like the rest of us do in an office environment. You don't need to have a vision and all of it. And so very interesting that actually you're saying you do. Yeah, that's my position. (laughs) And we met through putting ourselves in different positions that I think many people have done while we've been in this slightly weird world and we met through us both joining the Climate Coaching Alliance. What took you to that organization? Well, I have for a long time considered that climate change is the great challenge of our generation, right? That's the that's the thing we say and that's been on my mind for at least a decade and like well before that. Back in the 80s, you know, there's the odd like TV show about the greenhouse effect or whatever. So it's not a new idea, but it's been on my mind for a long time. I felt like I was the only one. Like, like, you know, why, why does that, you know, and occasionally I'd send a letter to a, a, like anytime anyone got elected who represented me, I would send them a letter saying, it's great that you got elected for all these things, but I need you to know that climate change is a great challenge facing our generation and you need to prioritize it in your policies. And it was like, you know, shouting into the wind. And now, finally, it seems like people are catching up, which is great. It's late, but, you know. And so with that kind of in my back pocket all along through all my different iterations as mother and copy editor and all the other things I've done, I came to coaching and I understand how powerful coaching is as a tool, you know, trying to figure out, you know, how can I do more coaching and also generally make the world better and tackle climate change so uh then I found the climate coaching alliance and it seemed like a perfect fit an amazing organization amazing and and more amazing the more that you learn that it's it's run completely on a volunteer basis yet for those of you listening you want to check out the website and the events that are run because they are so professional and an absolute wealth of information on there and a community that you are so welcoming and everybody that I've met as part of the coaching alliance has just felt like people that I've known a long time you know almost a seamless a bit like you and I meeting Amy it's like oh yeah of course Amy oh yeah look what she's doing now and you know the fact that we just met and the Climate Coaching Alliance is truly global. They run different time zone meetings. And if you're lucky enough to be in a place where you can go to one meeting, 
you can be having completely different conversations because you're touching people completely around the world, which is just a fabulous thing. Because although we are all committed to wanting to do the greater good in terms of sustainability and climate change, this is not an equal position globally, is it? So really understanding what people are going through in different parts of the world is very important. It's not one size fits all. Yeah, absolutely. So our topic for today, sustainable you and the benefit of a thinking sabbatical. Now you came up with this term, Amy, I believe. Well, Leanne Davey, who's running, we'll talk about her later. She uses it, but I really grabbed onto it. I really like it. Why? Uh, I like the idea of sabbatical. It sounds professorial and kind of expensive. There is a, there's a Dilbert comic from I used to be in tech so I had to read Dilbert it's part of the requirements for being in tech and one of the side characters went on an in-cube sabbatical which is just basically where you don't do any work but you go to the office and I mean I think we've all worked with someone like that and I thought that was brilliant I thought that was a very great way to sort of subvert capitalism you just go to work and don't do any work but call it an in-cube sabbatical so I've loved sabbaticals ever since. And I like the idea of a thinking sabbatical. Well, and I mean, I guess a sabbatical as a professor is exactly this, is a chance to take a break from all your professor work and just kind of cogitate and ruminate and think about stuff and, and sort of let it, uh, let it ferment in your brain. And it's something that actually people have been advocating for, I mean, forever, I think, actually, yeah. you know. I could have put things on here from the 1800s, probably, you know, this is a lot to do with people who practice meditation and it's culturally in a lot of places, it is absolutely part of a healthy regime. But I plumped for Steve Jobs because kind of, you know, he's good for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, he went through a few cycles himself, didn't he? You know, he was a complex character and him thinking that, you know, your time is limited. So don't waste it living someone else's life, which is a terrible modern disease that we have to deal with today with the impact of social media and just how much we can see about everybody else's perfect lives and trying to match them with our own. And don't be trapped by dogma. Um, And this is something that I'm very conscious of because I read a lot around my area, my business area of profession. I don't really read a lot of nice, you know, chick flick books, but my God, can I read through a load of business coaching? leadership type stuff when you do a lot of studying one of the things I realized is you kind of don't want to do it anymore because you feel like you've no longer got any ideas of your own yeah your head is full of other people's thinking yes so I'm totally with Steve on that and then there is this knock-on effect that as he's saying here don't let the noise of others opinions drown out your own inner voice And that is what can happen when we think we're doing the right thing of being really good and continuing to study and reading all the stuff around us and being very respectful of our peer group. But then when do we actually have the confidence to say, you know what, I've got an opinion on this. Yeah. 
And why isn't my opinion as valid as the people who happen to be published? Yeah. Um, and then, of course, they all kind of link together, don't they? There is a general knock-on effect with this sort of receiving of all this external input. The most important thing is to have the courage to follow your own heart and intuition. Now, I think that to be able to do that, you have to listen to it. Yeah. And to actually listen to what you are really thinking, what you really believe, you need a little bit of peace and quiet to do that. Exactly. Yeah. Although, you know, for centuries, we've realized this studying the brain is something that is more recent in its development of uh, neuroscience and what people have learned there and this in the little bit that I've studied I think is amazing and it is helping I think a lot of people when they're thinking about topics like this think oh it's about meditation it's about letting go it's not for me I don't need that But actually, there's some real heavy science coming here that for all of us, all of us who have inadequate sleep (laughs) and poor nutrition and feel a bit emotional, then actually that is coming from a place where we are stressing our brains so much every day by this constant bombardment of information that it actually comes out in physical things in us as human beings real physical things and there's a list of things there attention deficit perception short-term memory loss learning word binding I mean how many days do you do that (laughs) yeah yeah this is a very real not just about having a hippie moment a real a way that you can improve your physical feeling and uh, well-being yeah for sure I remembered that I even wrote about (laughs) this in my book so I remembered so I wrote my book like 2010 so 11 years ago What, what is the name of your book transform your business originally 99 steps to achieve success not my idea that was the publisher in the time when all these things were the rage It was a simpler time when people had time to do 99 things. (laughs) Absolutely. And in there, step 11 is be distracted. And it was all about looking at the art of the possible. Because this was something that I really encourage people to do, my clients. And actually looking at the art of the impossible, the impossible or possible, can be quite an intense process. And as I've written here, it requires some free thinking and a lot of navel gazing. While that is all fresh in your mind, you need to be distracted to enable what is scientifically known as the aha moment, the moment (laughs) of brilliance that always comes. And, you know, loads of neuroscientists have studied the aha moment, again, as a real bit of science. And I know for me, I get this moment where I have this weird time in the early hours of the morning when I'm kind of in no man's land. I'm not awake, but I'm not asleep. And my mind does amazing things in that time. I can wake up and go, I know the answer. And (laughs) which is just fabulous. And the only other time that I've had something close to that is when I go swimming because it's the only thing that I do 
where I'm not listening to music or anything else. And that's when it comes. So what about you? Where do your moments come from? Well, that's a good question. I have to say, I'm fascinated by this morning sort of liminal space where, you know, you're kind of half awake and half asleep because I, when I wake up, I am awake. (laughs) I am usually immediately anxious about something, particularly lately, but, uh, I've always, unfortunately, in my marriage, I was assigned the official waker upper because I can be like up and ready to go instantly. It doesn't take me, I don't have like an on-ramp time, but I know people do have this sort of morning creative space because there's a woman that I work with named Kelly Deals who does her writing first thing in the morning and her creative work. And she says, the veil is thin in the morning. (laughs) Like she has access to like more things somehow. Um, so that's real, but I don't, I don't have that experience. When do I get the, I get the ahas when I'm walking usually. And sometimes I'm taking a bath. If I can, if I can stand to take a bath without any kind of, uh, magazines or whatever, I get it then. But walking is a big one for me. Oh, no, it is lovely. And so take us back now to this thinking sabbatical and where this came from for you, because it's not a recent thing for you, is it? No, it's not. So the challenge that I'm doing is just a group of people sort of on LinkedIn sort of posting, doing this and posting about it. And it's run by a friend of mine, Leanne Davey, who is a organizational psychologist, leadership consultancy kind of person, and also my neighbor and a fellow neighborhood mom. So I know her from way back in a completely different context from this coaching stuff. But I kind of re, we rediscovered each other when I moved into coaching and, and she was suggested to me as someone that I should meet and hang out with. And it turns out she's super cool and we have fun together. So she kind of prodded me to do this. And at first I was reluctant to, because it seemed like it's kind of a gimme for me. Like I already do this. I don't need to necessarily join a challenge and I'm pretty protective of my time and energy so it's like do I want to do I want to do this but it seemed like fun and uh it's pretty low-key it's just you know do it for a couple weeks post about it a few times so I signed on and like I said it's, it's something that I already sort of do anyway I committed to do so take us back to when you committed to do it were you in at a time in your life where you know, you were just being bombarded, you know, was it just life generally? Were you feeling some reason for wanting to do this? You know, I actually hadn't really connected the dots on this. But now that you say I did kind of dramatically rage quit like Twitter and most social media and also a lot of conventional media, like I used to listen to the radio all the time. In 2016, 2017, anyway, it was when the provincial government changed in Ontario and we went back to a very conservative government, populist, and I was so angry because when I moved here like 25 years ago, 22 years ago, it was that kind of government and they basically ruined my university experience back in, you know, the 90s. And I guess I was kind of naive and believed that progress moves forward consistently. And I was so upset and angry and betrayed that we had like voted in this another iteration of the same awful government that I was just like, forget it. I don't need that. I don't need to know what the government's doing. I don't need to know what everyone's angry about on Twitter. I don't need any of this. 
And I just stopped sort of taking in all of that stuff. And I think that's probably when I got into these habits of sort of more empty space in my life and not taking stuff in just because, you know, it was a reaction to a specific kind of input, but it generalizes really well. And then it developed into more recently in the last maybe two or three years, I've sort of embraced that I think my job on this planet is to take in information, digest it, and connect it up for other people. So for years and years, I just, I like read, I read a lot. I read magazines. I read uh, like science magazines. I read science books. I read novels. I read all kinds of stuff. Like I just taking it in. And that started to feel kind of incomplete, right? Like I'm just taking stuff in and then what it gets stuck in my brain like it felt sort of clogged up right like what is the point of learning all this stuff and thinking about all these things if I then just die (laughs) and nothing comes of it right like I you know there's no point in doing all this stuff if I don't somehow make it into something and put it into the world and so it was when I realized that like thinking is actually part of my job right like that's one of the things I'm here to do so I better give myself some time and space to do it properly you know I'm not I'm not on the planet as like a media consumption machine that's just the beginning of the process right like it's a conversation so I guess there was sort of an inner shift in me and like embracing what seems like a very kind of pompous (laughs) I am here to think about things and tell people what I think but you know I guess I am gonna do and I think isn't that I think that's true of all of us and maybe actually we're a bit more open to this because of the pandemic and because of the lockdown situations we've all been through where I definitely through the pandemic stopped watching the news I didn't want the daily death roll of yeah what was going on it, it was so upsetting it was so upsetting to hear that we weren't getting all the decisions right and people were dying because of that I remember to begin with I mean I felt quite concerned you know like everybody else and we tuned into the news and for the first time ever our government decided to do daily bulletins we hadn't had anything like that before so we were all kind of tuning in five o'clock Boris is going to tell us what's going on and then we suddenly realized that this was just now an actual, an opportunity for the media machine to start rolling out. And it was relentless. And so I think actually I'd say for the first time in my life, I stopped everything, stopped listening to the radio where it was news, stopped watching the TV news. I mean, stopped altogether because yeah. I, it was relentless and painful and I felt that there was no good to come of it really and as our daily activity was going out for a walk you may as well just enjoy that without carrying all this baggage around yeah it turns out you don't really need the news every day there's very little that's sort of actionable in the daily news right like you can worry about it so yeah I I dialed back to what I call like slow media so I subscribed to some really good magazines but they come out every month like by the time you publish something in a magazine 
it's been, you, you know, people have been thinking about it for six months at least, right? So it's, it's a little bit digested already. Yeah. And when the pandemic started, I thought I should probably ramp it up a little bit. So I subscribed to a weekly newspaper. And again, you know, it's the weekend newspaper. So they kind of do a little bit of the work of summarizing and contextualizing so that, you know, you're not every single day having to like read these numbers and figure out what that what does that mean? Numbers are up by this much. What am I going to do with that information? Right? Like I'm already staying home. I'm already getting vaccinated. I'm doing everything I can do. You know, at most I, I'm donating money and I have, you know, doing some things, but the everyday relentless data is not useful. So. No, and actually very counterproductive in many ways. And I think yeah. I think many of us have learned that we just don't need this amount of exposure, like you say. And I, I think really interesting, I, I can relate to, and I'm sure many of the listeners can relate to the fact that you said, you know, you take in this information, but then it feels incomplete. If you're taking it in, then you feel like you should be doing something with it. And if you don't give yourself an opportunity to do something with it, what happens? It just stays within you? Or what was the point in taking it in in the first place? Yeah, exactly. I think many, many people may already be doing some of Leanne's challenge without even realizing. And yes, sometimes useful, though, to bring it into our conscious mind. So exactly, that yeah. saying, oh, this didn't just happen accidentally. You know, like you said, you had some social media rage. I had some news rage. You do something like that and you think that's why I stopped listening to it. And it was just a moment. But actually, yeah. this is legitimately more than a moment, isn't it? And I think what Leanne does with the few points that she's put down is that she's put some time limits around it. Because people might think you could get away with like doing this for five or 10 minutes or something, but it is not actually, you know, that's my, like when people try and get me to meditate, like, <laughs> oh yeah, what? That was a minute. That was a minute. Oh my God. <laughs> so, so actually she's saying count only chunks where you get 45 minutes or more of thinking time. Yeah, that seems like a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, so her rules are on well, they're on the screen, but and I think she just made them up. I don't know. She's an organizational psychologist. Maybe there's something, you know, some some concrete logic behind this, but maybe she just made them up. It doesn't matter. I think the point is to put structure around it and be intentional about it. So it's a two-week challenge. And the idea is to get six hours a week. So I guess 12 hours altogether. And yeah, 40, I think 45 minute chunks is the scary, but also the, the most powerful part of it, right? Like you're really sitting for a long time with your thoughts. I, I like to think about quality time versus quantity time. And I'm a big believer in quantity time in the, uh, like spending a lot of time doing things. So I guess the daunting thing about this is like the idea of like, I don't meditate. I cannot meditate. I've tried. I'm like you. Each minute is about a year and a half. And, and like, I, you know, I think, oh, that's been a great long session of meditating. And it's been four and a half minutes. So, you know, I don't do it. But this, I think, is maybe something of a compromise because you can you're allowed to do other stuff 
So, you know, folding laundry is the one that Leanne always talks about, which makes me think that she must do that a lot. Doing dishes, if you don't have a dishwasher, is great for that. I feel like doing dishes used to be like this kind of great moment of like solitude. It's the end of the day. You know, either you're doing it with someone else, so you're having a nice connection with a family member, or you're, you know, you got your hands. It's it's a very tactile. Not suggesting that I will ever go back to doing dishes because I do love my dishwasher. But you know, that's a. I think that's a great sort of a moment that naturally arises for me. I kind of sit outside a lot. I said to Leanne, this is a great challenge because it's it allows me to call sitting outside on the deck uh, an activity <laughs> like. I just, but uh, yeah, I don't feel like I have to do something else. Like usually I'll take a book or something. So I don't feel like I'm wasting time, but now I'm like, no, I'm doing my thinking. So yeah, you can roll it into some other activity, which makes it a lot more palatable than meditating. And I think for this purpose, possibly more valuable. I think meditating is probably neurologically a different thing than this like you're not really meant to be daydreaming or thinking or connecting things or whatever while you're meditating you're specifically not supposed to do that so to make this like an add-on to some physical thing they're already doing is kind of perfect so it's really more a process of subtracting like you're gonna do this thing anyway you're exercising or you're folding laundry or you're raking the leaves if it's fall or whatever and normally you would add a podcast or you'd add music right or you'd take a book or something just don't do that so just don't you know just say this is the time when I'm just going to do the thing and I find the 45 minutes add up pretty quickly count taking a shower and you know making your tea and watching the birds for a little bit and that stuff yeah it's 45 minutes and there you know you've done it so I agree and it is um, I mean you started to touch on it there to give yourself time to daydream I mean it's the stuff of childhood isn't it this is what we want our own children to do we want them to be daydreaming thinking up creative ideas stories you know is I remember that when I was a child you know you parents really encourage you to be creative as you're thinking up stories and as you're playing together you know creating characters and little plays it's all in this this state that we can get our minds into where we're just daydreaming just our little own fantasies while we let our minds just mull over the information that's already in there. Yeah, yeah, you're making connections. Well, it's interesting that you bring up childhood because I think if you sort of dabble in early childhood education, which I think most of us with kids do, if you're a curious person, the big thing is play-based learning, right? Like you put the kids together in a rich environment and you just let them do things and that's how they learn is by playing and being what looks like idle or fooling around or whatever if you're looking at it from a capitalist point of view but the play and the learning are inextricably linked you can't separate them in children so why would we think that you could separate them in adults right like you have to play to get the best learning, to get the best ideas and creativity. Yeah, you you mentioned we mostly have our best ideas in the shower. You know, for me, is in that moment of no man's land or when I'm swimming, and I'm sure most people would be able to connect to the walk-in. But we do know this. We know that there is 
a moment of magic that happens when we let our minds, you describe it as a default mode network, <laughs> which I, I think for you know, lots of people uh, who listen are tech, technology geeks. Um, so it is that, it's that default state, that default setting that is naturally there and yeah. letting that exist. Yeah, the default mode network is, um, I think, neurologists uh, use the terminology. But yeah, it very, it very much resonates with computer people, right? Like it's the state that your brain goes to when you're awake and you're not really doing anything else, right? Like it's just kind of, it's at the ready. It's simmering. It's working on stuff. But, you know, you're not inputting anything. So there's no particular work being done to process. It's all in internal juicy work right like I like to, to call it fermenting the stuff is already there all the goodness is there but it needs to connect and interrelate and you know and that's that's where those aha moments come from I think is connections right there's this stuff over here some ideas or thoughts you've had or whatever insights and then it's some new thought over here that you've just learned in the last few days or whatever and if you just give it some space, those two thoughts will find each other in your brain. And then you'll go, oh, oh, I know what I need to do. Yeah. And that's the, that's the magic, right? But you can't, as long as there's more stuff going in, your, your brain is too busy to make those, join those things up. So. Yeah, exactly. And you also talk about the fact that, uh, you know, we have to think about why when we're doing this, even if you do it as a challenge or you just decide to add it to your lives, why do we overload ourselves with the input in the first place? So make that part of the process that you go through. Yeah. Oh, for sure. This came to me when I was sort of writing up one of my reports for the challenge because I was thinking about meditation again. And it's sort of coming to light that a lot of people really, meditation is not good for them. It triggers their anxiety. It triggers like, it's not great for everybody. And to the point where some programs and stuff have stopped recommending meditation to everybody because there's some significant portion of the population who actually have a negative effect from meditation. So I had that on my mind when I was writing this. And I thought like, is this necessarily good for everybody? Like something that you want to be careful about going into. And so the question that leads up to that is, you know, why are you giving yourself all this input? And I think about my mom who probably dealt with anxiety her whole life, but you know, we didn't call it anxiety. It was just, you know, she worried a lot. And she used to go to bed listening to the radio. She had like an under pillow speaker. So she could always have the radio on because if she was left alone with her thoughts, she'd just get too anxious and she couldn't sleep. That's not ideal. You know, that's not necessarily the right answer to insomnia and anxiety, but it worked for her. And so it served a purpose, right? And so lots of things, lots of times we do things that you're not supposed to do or whatever, because it serves a purpose, right? It's helping us get through our lives. So I think that's something we're thinking about, right? Like don't necessarily go cold turkey. If it's awful, then you need to take a step back and go like, how is this serving me? Why do I do this? 
and do I necessarily want to stop it abruptly? And if, you know, and if like 15 minutes in, I feel really bad, maybe I should just put on some music and call it a wash for today, right? Like, and I, I did that uh, last week sometime. I woke up feeling really crappy and I was like, uh, should I do the 45 minute thing? And I decided, no, I'm going to go for a walk and listen to some music because I want to raise my mood. That's another way you can hack your mood is with music because music is kind of magical that way. And I just decided, I'm like, you know what? Maybe later I can do the 45 minutes. Maybe I'll do it another day. Leanne's not going to come to my house and yell at me if I don't do it properly. So that was a choice that I made. Other things like FOMO, like, you know, oh my God, everyone's listened to the Brene Brown podcast. I'm not going to be able to have a conversation with another coach until I, (laughs) until I listen to this podcast, which, you know, you can't keep up. So just give, give up, I guess. And loneliness is another one, right? Like a lot of us are alone all the time now. And sometimes you just have the radio on or you just have a podcast on because you don't want to do the dishes or fold laundry in complete silence. And that's fine too. Like, but you know, know why you're doing it. Yeah. And I think it's really important not to make this another thing. Yes. <laughs> it's, um, you know, if you feel like it, great. If you don't feel like it, great. Uh, and it is understanding that for different people, it may come, you know, it might be nice to do something like this at a different point in the day. I know I've experimented quite a lot with these things and I'm like your mum. I, I go to bed with earphones on because if I don't, I can't sleep. I hear all the time when I'm honest about that fact, oh, you know, the people who say, they're so bad for you, you'll never sleep. But actually, I think we are all different. And for me, actually, that turns my head off. If I didn't have it, I would be up all night with all this stuff reeling around in my head. Right? Yeah. (laughs) So we are saying that these things are, they're like, well, they're kind of just like exercise. You do it when you feel that it's good for you to do it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then, and try and make it fun, which looks like (laughs) you're doing here in this picture. And for those of you who are only listening on the podcast, there is a picture up on the screen of Amy on a construction site with a plant that she has hand dug with all the roots in her hands. So was this a moment of quiet contemplation? It was not uh, a moment of quiet contemplation. It was a moment of mild civil disobedience instigated by my 18-year-old. There's a construction site near my house, which they're building a eight-story condo building or something but the site used to be individual residences and the front yard of one of these residences is full of hostas and I love hostas and I know they're not going to dig these up and transplant them somewhere they're not going to take care of them they're just going to drive over them with their bulldozers and stuff and so I was looking at going god I should really you know I should just take one of I should liberate one of these guys bring them home rescue it and we walked kind of half a block and my daughter was like, no, you should go, go back and do it. Come on, you know, don't be shy. And uh, so I did. I dug, dug, dug it up with my bare hands on the side of a busy street on a sunny day in Toronto. And glad I did. It's thriving in my front yard. I love that. I love that. Uh, and, and I think this is something I've noticed as well. And, and again, I'm sure many people listening have 
the fact that we are going out walking more means we are noticing more. And this is another thing about not walking always with earphones on, just to yeah. be at one on your walk, looking around and taking in the sights and sounds of nature and taking a bit of notice yes. of what's going on. Because if we could all get out and rescue some plants from building sites, that would be a fabulous thing. <laughs> Right. Absolutely. I was actually thinking about that the other day as I was sitting in my backyard in the morning and it's migration season in Toronto right now. So there's all kinds of birds coming across and I couldn't see any of them, but I could hear so many different bird cries and, and, you know, cause they're up in the trees or they're over here and over there. And I thought like, there's so much information in nature, just in the sounds of it, right? Like in the wind and the birds and animals, rustling noises and stuff. There's so like, if you really go out and pay attention in nature, so much of the input is audio. So that was, I don't know, that was my my big realization is that, you know, we're so visually oriented, I think in, in sort of like Western society in terms of text and images and stuff that I think the sound input is a little bit neglected. Yeah, that's another thing that I noticed while I was doing this, but I might not have otherwise. And where I live particularly, the bird song actually all the way through lockdown has been so intense. And so I frequently will do some of my meetings as walking meetings. And that's the feedback I get. The first thing that people will say is, where are you? Because all I can hear is this intense (laughs) song behind you, which if you're going to have a backdrop for a meeting, I think that's probably one of the best that you can. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) So for everybody who's watching and listening, this is something that you can all try at home. It is. It's free. (laughs) so amy why don't you take us through what we should do if we want to give this a go all right if you are an icf coach you will know that this is just a coaching conversation that i'm leading you through so think about why you want to do this what's important about it for you right now do you want a rest for your brain do you want to feel better do you want to think about things so that you can make a decision or so that you can write about it. Are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you just curious? I think just being curious about what will happen is a very good reason to do things. I do lots of things just to see what my body and brain will, how my body and brain will respond. So, you know, what's your motivation? It's the first sort of thing to ask. And then think about what you're saying no to when you say yes to this. This is uh, to give credit to Michael Bungay-Stanier, who's a Toronto coach and kind of pretty famous. He was on Brene Brown's podcast. That's one of his big kind of coaching questions. What are you saying no to? And that kind of goes back to the question about what do you get out of all the input that's coming in, right? Are you going to miss out on something? Is it serving a purpose that you will need to sort of be mindful of or try to replace? You know, what's what's at risk here? For me, it's been reading. Like I haven't gotten very far on the book that I'm in the middle of because I've been just sitting in the backyard instead of sitting with a book. So my book's been kind of sitting there and I haven't gotten any 
you know, I've got, haven't got very far with it, but that's okay. It's two weeks. So that's, you know, it's a calculated risk and I'm okay with it. I'll catch up later. And then implementation, what are you going to need to do? Is this the kind of thing that you're going to need to put in the calendar? Will you forget to do it? But often I will say, I'm going to do this thing. And then a few days later, I'll realize that I've forgotten that I was going to do the thing. Do you want to set a reminder? Do you want to find someone else who'll do it and check in with them? What might get in the way of doing it? All that, all that sort of middle of the coaching conversation questions. How, how are you going to make this happen? Once you've figured all that out and you're doing it, how can you get the most value out of it? So for me, that means after I'm finished thinking and I've come up with something, I should write it down because otherwise, you know, chances are good that I'll forget whatever it was. So I'll write down, I'll jot down ideas I've had or thoughts I've had that have been useful. And also more generally, just journaling is a great way to further digest things and sort of take your big amorphous ideas and kind of squeeze them into a linear form so you know journaling if you already do it this is this is only going to help like it's really going to uh give you something to journal about so the two things really work together nicely and if you're not a journaling kind of person i think conversation with another person serves very much the same purpose so this would be a good week to make sure that you're getting together with other people who are good to talk to because there'll be some insights you know you'll think that's that you haven't thought before and you'll connect ideas up and it's great to be able to process that stuff through conversation so you know get the most out of it what's not to love about this <laughs> right it's like a vacation <laughs> for your brain with a bunch of homework yeah with output so and and in fact you know if you've got something coming up or you've got a problem that you are, are having trouble working on this is the ideal sort of route to find the answer isn't it absolutely yeah it's a great way to sort of process things and figure stuff out yeah. amy and i would love to hear from you all as to whether you are gonna try it and um, whether you're trying it you're on your journey and what you thought about it so of course get in touch with us in all the usual places and we'll be thrilled to hear from you thanks so much amy i've really enjoyed it you've been an excellent guest today thanks for coming on thank you it's been a pleasure it's been lovely to chat Thanks again to Nina's guests today and thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Change Troubleshooter. Nina invites you to carry on the conversation with her directly. All contact details can be found on her website, ninadar.com. Join us for the next episode in two weeks' time. This has been a Sunsoaked Creative Production.